Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. We're continuing our study in the series of Exodus. We're in, uh, we, uh, Elise just read, you know, a couple of verses. We're actually going to cover quite a big chunk of text this morning from uh, chapter 3, verse 11, all the way through chapter 4, verse 17. But I know, you know, some of you get tired of standing, and it's a long thing to have to read. So I figured we'd let her start with that little bit there, and we'll get to the rest. Uh, now, if you were with us last week, you know that the, the story is sort of stacking up. And just as a recap, as we got to the end of the, um, the section we were in last week, God had come to Moses, who was living in Midian, taking care of his sheep. He's got a family out there. Things are pretty comfortable for him. God comes to him and says, I've heard the cries of my people in Egypt. I've heard of their suffering. I've decided to do something about it. I'm going to deliver them from their enslavement. I'm going to lead them into the promised land. And, and I'm going to you know, finally do something about it. And we talked last week about the fact that all of that declaration would have been thrilling to Moses, knowing that his family and generations of his uh, people were enslaved in Egypt. He would have been thrilled about the speech up to that point. But the way God finishes that particular declaration, he says, I want to do all these things. And then in verse 10, he says, so now go, I'm sending you to go and deliver my people. And that's, that's where things get a little tricky for Moses, right? As we pick it up today in, in verse 11, what we will see is that Moses begins a dialogue, kind of a dialogue. Mostly, Moses proceeds with what are essentially four objections or four arguments, four excuses that Moses makes with regard to why he doesn't feel like he's the one that should do this thing that God's called him to do. And it's interesting when you read, and we'll see it as we sort of work our way through, but it's, it almost feels a little bit like the way, you know, we interact with, you know, have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you just had to like break up with a girl or, you know, like there's a breakup that needs to happen and you try to sort of get into it easy and sometimes it just, I actually had to, I had to break up with a girl one time on Valentine's Day and uh, I, I can hear your disdain, right? I'm, we're in the same room with each other. Go easy on me. Um, but I, I tried to kind of ease into this thing and it, it just, she wasn't picking up what I was putting down, you know? Sometimes people just can't take a hint. I started kind of like Moses does. Um, Moses looks at God, basically his objections in this text, he's going to start by looking at God and saying, who am I? Then he's going to move and say, who are you, oh God? And he's going to say, what if the people don't believe me? Or what about what other people will say? And he's going to finish, his fourth objection is essentially him saying, I, I, I'm not capable. I, I'm, I've got uh, frailty, I've got the in, inability, I, I can't do it. I think that's sort of the way we interact with people sometimes when we're trying to get out of relationships. You know, you start by doing this thing that goes, you deserve better than me. Like, who am I? You shouldn't be dating me. There's so many better people out there that you should be dating. And I thought that would work with this particular girl. And she just kept going, no, you're the one I want to be with. And I'm like, okay. So then you move to that statement of like, like you're so great and you deserve someone better. And I, I don't know if I even really know you. And it's just hard for us to, you know, you kind of do that thing. And she's like, well, you'll get to know me over time. That's why we're dating you know, so you can get to know me. And I'm like, okay, you're, you're not getting it here. I don't want to date anymore, you know. And then, then you do that thing where you're like, well, I've talked to my friends. I've talked to my family, other people. And a lot of people are kind of telling me, like, this relationship isn't really a good one. It's not really working out. You know, we probably should, you know, call it a day. And she's like, who cares what other people think, you know? It doesn't matter what they think. What matters is us, you know? We, we care about each other. And I'm like, all right. And then you finally do that thing, and you know, right? You know, that there's that final step, which is, it's not about you. It's about me. We need to break up. It's my, I've got issues. I've got problems. I just, it's all on me. It's not you. And that didn't even work. And it just so happened that that plan sort of all fell apart right on Valentine's Day. And so I was like, 
that's it, it's not happening, We're, it's over, right? And I broke up with this girl, and it wasn't my finest moment, right? For Moses, I would say it's really interesting and telling. We know that Moses is the one who wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. I actually really like the fact that Moses isn't portrayed in this text in a great light. In fact, there are some things we'll see in the text this morning that kind of, kind of make him look like not such a great guy. And I like that because what I'm seeing there is the Spirit of God revealing truth through Moses, even in those moments where there are things about Moses and his perception of God and his perception about himself that aren't necessarily that favorable. Moses begins right after the declaration of God. God says, so now go, I'm sending you into Egypt in verse 10. And then look at what it says in verse 11. Moses' first objection, here it is. In verse 11, Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I, he says. That's his first objection. And it's an interesting one because we live in a culture that's sort of obsessed with answering that question, don't we? There are all kinds of books and all kinds of seminars and all kinds of spiritual getaways and retreats. There's all kinds of things that are framed around coming to the answer to the question, who am I? I have to find myself. I'm on a journey of self-discovery, right? I gotta figure out who I am. And we live in a culture, in some ways, that's sort of obsessed with trying to discover oneself. We live in a culture that spends a lot of money and a lot of time trying to get to the heart of who I am, figure out who I am. But can I tell you, the problem here, both for Moses and for our culture in, in a broader sense, is that it isn't possible to come to an adequate answer to that question apart from the second question that Moses asks. So we've got a lot of people who are looking to all kinds of different sources and all kinds of different inputs to find the answer to who they are. Who am I? But the reality is that we as created beings can't fully understand who we are until we understand who God is. So in some ways, Moses gets his questions out of order. The most important and the prominent question, the most important question you can ask is, who is God? And then when I understand who God is, when I have a broader understanding of who I was created by, then I can begin to unravel some of the reality of who I am. But for the countless people in our world and in our generation today who are looking for answers with regard to who they are and what their purpose is and why they're here on a journey of self-discovery, if you're trying to answer those questions apart from an understanding of who God is, you're always going to be disappointed. The answers that you come up with are always going to be inadequate if they discount first the reality of who created you. Moses looks at God and he says, who am I? And maybe he's being falsely humble here. Maybe he's being truly humble. I mean, there are really good answers to that question. When Moses says, who am I that I should be the one to go into Egypt? I mean, it would be very easy for God to come right back and say, are you kidding me? You're the only Hebrew male of your age group that's alive and free that isn't enslaved. So that's one thing. You're also the most educated, the most well-trained Hebrew male of your generation that's alive because he was trained and raised and educated in Egypt, the finest education somebody could have during that time. It would be easy for God to look at Moses and go, who are you? You're the one who has an intimate knowledge of the political workings of the Egyptian system. You're the one that has family ties to the Pharaoh. You're the one who knows better than anybody about the oppression that's happening. You've already got a passion for seeing justice happen. I mean, the literal answer to the question, who am I? When Moses says, who am I? It's almost like those moments where we do that thing where we're fishing for compliments, right? Have you ever done that? 
Or somebody goes, hey, how's it going? And you go, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just not sure if I'm capable of doing the things that are in front of me. And, you, and what we're hoping is people go, no, you're great, and you're smart, and you're good looking, and your bald head is so shiny, you know? <laughs> go, oh, yeah, yeah, come on, you know? It's almost as if when Moses says, who, I am, who am I, that in some ways, he's sort of waiting for God to go, well, let me tell you all of your excellent qualities, and let me tell, tell you about all of your great training, and let me tell you about all of the ways in my divine power I've prepared you for this. But listen, God doesn't do any of that. God doesn't recite for Moses his resume or his qualifications or all of the reason why, why Moses makes sense to do this job. Instead, look at how God answers. Moses says in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He answered, that's God. God said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I want you to see what happens here. God doesn't answer his question. Moses says, who am I? And God doesn't say, well, you're qualified, you've got the right training, you've got the right background, why? Because he doesn't want Moses to be more confident in his own equiption, equiption's not a word, he doesn't want Moses to be more qualified or more confident in his own sense of ability, how about that? Somebody's gotta buy me a thesaurus eventually, right? We're gonna make that happen. He doesn't want Moses to be so confident in himself, he wants Moses to be confident in his calling. And so what God does instead is he looks at Moses, Moses says, who am I? And God says, irrelevant. It doesn't matter who you are. What God says is, I will be with you, and that's what matters. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or how much you know or what you've experienced or how fit and equipped and qualified you are for this particular role. What matters is who you're with. And the same thing is true for each and every one of us this morning. I think sometimes as human beings, we get distracted by defining ourselves, by repeating to ourselves some you know, healthy self-talk about who we are and that we're good enough and smart enough and people like us. And we want God to repeat those things back to us and instead God goes, no, 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 none of that makes any difference. What matters is I'm with you. I love it in Numbers, right, when the spies go into the promised land. They send 12 spies into the promised land to scout it out. It's further ahead in this story. And when they come back, the leaders of Israel, 10 or 11 of them say, hey, we went in there and we saw this place and it was beautiful, but we looked like grasshoppers to our enemies, and so we looked to ourselves like grasshoppers. And I love the fact that Caleb, one of the spies, when he speaks up, he doesn't go, guys, we didn't look like grasshoppers. We looked like Godzilla, you know? We looked powerful. What do you do? We didn't look like grasshoppers. He doesn't argue with them. And you know why I think he doesn't argue with them? Because I think they actually look like grasshoppers. I don't think their enemies were intimidated by them. And I think when they saw their own reflection, they, there wasn't much to be impressed with. Caleb, in the book of Numbers, does not argue with that estimation. What he says instead is, if God is with us, we can certainly do it. Can I tell you this morning, it doesn't matter what you look like or where you've been or what you've done or how much qualification or certification or ability you've got, what matters is who you're with. You can have all the qualifications and all the certifications and all the ability and potential in the world and if God is not with you, it's wasted. Moses says, who am I that I should go? And God goes, who cares about that? I'll be with you. That's cool. So Moses makes a second objection, and here's the second one. Back to, Mo, or back to Exodus chapter three. Moses said to God in verse 13, 
If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? The second question is, who are you? Right? Who are you? Now, this is a good question. It's an important question. In fact, we as created beings should spend a good amount of our time asking the question, who is this God? What does he look like? What does he want? What is his heart like? Why has he created us? Those are really good questions to ask, unless you're only asking the question to get out of something very clear that God has called you to. Moses looks at God and he says, well, what am I going to say to people? If they ask me who you are, what am I going to tell them? What do I tell them your name is? Now, part of this comes from the fact that Egypt was a very pluralistic society. They, they worshipped lots of different gods with lots of different names. So part of it is just Moses sort of narrowing it down and saying, what name should I identify you with? But there's actually something even worse that's happening here. God reveals himself and he says, Here, here's the answer that God gives. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am, which, by the way, sounds a little bit like Popeye to me. It's neither here nor there. Uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So God responds by saying, I am essentially declaring some of the things we talked about last week, that God isn't dependent on anything else, that he's always existed, that he's eternal, that he's present, right? This idea of God being I am is mysterious, intentionally. You might look at that and go, well, that's a really weird way to identify yourself. Yeah, our God is mysterious. There is something really beautiful and brilliant about the fact that God looks at him and says, I exist, that's who I am, that's my name, I exist. But he, he goes on to identify himself by another name, and it's capitalized in all four letters there in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, excuse me, back it up to um, 15. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. That word that's translated Lord, is, is the, it's the Hebrew word that's written capital Y, capital H, capital W, capital, capital H. It's sometimes pronounced Yahweh, although there are some people who say you shouldn't try and pronounce it, and whatever way you pronounce it, you're not doing it right. Other people have translated it to the word Jehovah, which you've probably heard. But this isn't a new revelation of a name of God. God gives a name, Yahweh, which is translated Lord. He gives a name here, but it's not a new name. It's a name that the people of God knew a long time ago, but here's what's interesting. That particular name of God has not been used since the time of Jacob's descendants. So what we see as we follow the story of God's people out of Genesis and into Exodus is that while that name was prominently used at one time, it's sort of gone out of common usage. And you might go, who cares? Well, what it indicates to us is that over time, the people had gotten so, you know, in the midst of their movement to Egypt, in the midst of their enslavement, in the midst of their suffering, they'd gotten so internally focused that they knew God was there, but in some ways, they'd forgotten his name. That they'd, for, they'd forgotten his name. So when Moses looks at God and says, well, if the people ask me who you are, what should I tell them? Look at God's response again. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He's essentially looking at Moses and going, are you being serious? 
You forgot my name? Really? And he reminds them. And the name comes back into common usage after this. It's the first time it's been used in the, in the mouth here of God in this particular text. What Moses, the author, is trying to show us is that over time, they'd gotten so internally focused, they'd even forgotten the name of God. You and I have to be very careful that we don't get so focused on religion or that we don't get so focused on churchiness or that we don't get so focused on being able to answer Bible trivia questions that we stop remembering who God is, that we stop paying attention to the most important thing. Moses says, who are you? He says, who am I? And God answers his question. God says this in 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, excuse me, Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know, God says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God says, you want to know who I am? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the eternal God. I have not changed. It's just that you've lost sight of me. I'm going to lead you out, and I'm going to deliver you from this place. I'm going to lead you into a new place, and in the process, I will actually give you gold and silver. You'll plunder the Egyptians without a battle because of my mighty hand, he says. Moses says, who am I? God says, irrelevant. Moses says, who are you? He says, the same God I've always been. Don't forget. So Moses has a third objection. Let's look at it. Chapter four, verse one. Then Moses answered in, in Exodus 4.1, Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. What's he worried about? Well, his first objection is, who am I? His second is, who are you? His third is, what if other people don't believe me? What if they don't believe what I have to say? I'm supposed to just walk in and people are going to buy that? It seems a little far-fetched, you know, burning bush and all this other stuff. It's a little unbelievable. Can I tell you that I think probably the number one objection that we tend to have, the followers of Christ tend to have to sharing our faith with other people to declaring the truth of the resurrection of Christ, to being his ambassadors, carrying the message of reconciliation to a world that's lost and dying in sin, that desperately needs to know that Jesus loves them, that he died in their place, that he extends to them by his grace, resurrection, life. The number one excuse that people use to opt out of ambassadorship is they go, well, pe people don't want, they don't want to hear that. They're not going to believe it. They're not, I don't want to be a holy roller I don't want my neighbors to think I'm some kind of a weird Christian cult member, freako. Like, if I share my faith with people at work, they're gonna treat me weird, they're gonna act weird. What if people don't like that? What if they don't believe it? And so there are, there are places and ways in which we opt out of a thing God has called us to do, that God has appointed us to, because we say, well, people don't wanna hear that. People aren't gonna believe that. Can I tell you something, though? 
When you and I say, oh, I don't think anybody else wants to hear it, I don't think other people will believe, what we're actually saying is, I don't believe. When we say other people won't believe, what we're essentially saying, more to the point of what we're saying is, I don't believe that God will make happen what he says will happen. Because God has said, you'll be my ambassadors. You'll carry the message of reconciliation. And I will draw men to myself. It's interesting, even in this text, skip back with me to chapter three, verse 18. In chapter three, verse 18, when God's talking about leading them out of Egypt, in 18 it says, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He starts by saying, Moses, the people will listen to your voice. And the very next opportunity that Moses has to speak, he says, but what if they don't listen to me? God has just said, they will listen to you, and Moses says, but what if you don't know what you're talking about, right? Isn't that essentially what he's doing here? It's not that Moses is worried about how his message will be received. It's that he has a fundamental disbelief in the word of God. God has said they will listen, and Moses says, I don't think so. And in those places in our life where we go, I don't really want to share my faith. I don't really know what people will think. I don't know what they'll say about it. I don't know if they'll get it or believe it. What we're essentially saying is, I don't believe. When Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them in John 6, I don't think Jesus knew what he was talking about. When Jesus says in John 16, the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict mankind of sin and he will draw them to me, we go, I don't really think Jesus knows what he's talking about there. So I'm not gonna share. It's not that people won't believe, it's that we don't believe. And it's a, fundal, it's a fundamental even misunderstanding of what our role is. You know, it's not the role of an ambassador to save anyone. You and I, we don't have the ability to, to save people from sin and death. We don't have the ability to extend to them resurrection life. Only the Lord Jesus can do that. But sometimes we get this mindset that, that sort of thinks we're the ones that have to do it and we know we're not capable of it and so we don't share, we don't do our part. I had the opportunity last night, it was kind of weird, um, there was this big Christian concert in uh, Anaheim and they invited me to come uh, to the Honda Center and share the gospel, right? They're like, okay, you got 15 minutes. There's a band that's gonna play. When they get done, between, while, the, while the bands change over their gear, there's gonna be a 15 minute window and we want you to come and share the gospel. So they hand me a mic. I step up on this platform inside the Honda Center. Every seat was packed. I got bright lights in my eyes. Like, I have no idea who can see me or if anybody's listening. People are wandering off to the bathroom and whatever else they're doing. And I did my best, I endeavored in that moment, in those 15 minutes, to simply articulate the gospel as clearly and as concisely as I know how. But let me tell you what, I don't know if anybody put their faith in Christ last night. I don't have any idea if people were drawn to the Savior or not. I don't know if anybody understood what I said, or if they heard me clearly, or if they were all distracted by, you know, the concert that was going on next. But can I tell you, it doesn't make any difference whether anybody put their faith in Christ with regard to whether or not I glorified God. I hope that people put their faith in Christ, but can I say, that's God's business. My business is to declare the gospel with clarity because I've been appointed as an ambassador. And so for me, glorifying God in that moment is not counting whether or not people stood up or put their hands up or closed their eyes or whatever. That's God's job. My job is simply to declare it with clarity. God is honored when I declare with clarity and then what he chooses to do with it after, he's the only one who can do that anyway. 
If I start to believe that it's my responsibility to woo people into the kingdom of God or to lure them in or to bait them in, then I I have a, a misunderstanding of my role and I have terrible theology at that point, right? Then I become tempted to start manipulating a crowd or to work a room into a frenzy or figure out how, how to persuade people and I become no better than a what? Like a circus hypnotist in a sideshow. Just figuring out how to push people's buttons. That's not what God has called us to. God has called us to declare the truth, to carry the message of reconciliation and see what he will do. It's not about whether or not they will believe. That's God's business. But God in his grace, he gives Moses three signs anyway, right? This says something really cool about God. Moses goes, I don't know if they'll believe. And God had just said they will believe. They will listen. Moses goes, I don't know if they will. And then God, because of his goodness and his graciousness, he gives Moses three signs. Look at this. Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 4, he says, what if they don't believe me? And God says this. The Lord said to him in verse 2, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. By the way, this next part is one of those things that, like, if I was writing the book of Exodus, I might have chosen to leave out. It's a little humiliating. Here's what happens. God says, what are you holding there, Moses? Moses says, a staff. God said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it, right? Oh, no, right? That's going to go in the Bible, bro. People are going to be reading that. Thousands of years later, they're going to hear this story about Moses. He goes, oh, yeah, this is my staff. And God says, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground. It becomes a snake. Moses is like, ah, runs away, right? You got to kind of imagine at that point, God's like, oh, man, what are we? Kind of looks at the angels and like, really? Is this? He ran from the snake I made, you know? Dude, get back over here and pick that snake up, right? Moses runs from it. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. I imagine he tried to run from his hand at that point too, right? Like, "Ah! can't get away from my own hand, right? God goes, dummy, put your hand back in your jacket. Verse six, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, which is an interesting thing for God to say, by the way, because God has already said they will listen to you. But in his grace, he concedes to Moses' doubt and his lack of faith. He says, Moses, if you're right and I'm wrong, right, as if, if you're right and I'm wrong, if they will not believe you or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God gives him three signs, three, three demonstrations, miraculous demonstrations of power to reinforce the fact that God had already said they would believe. And all three of these are symbolic and they're on purpose. The serpent, by the way, was a representation of power in Egypt. It was a symbol that the Pharaoh himself used on his royal garments, the serpent. Leprosy was rampant in Egypt and they had no way to control it or to slow it down. They had no ability to do anything about the leprosy issue, and so for God to show up on the scene and show his power over serpents and show his power over leprosy was profound. The Egyptian people saw the Nile River as a source of life for them, 
They actually looked at the Nile as a god in its own right. So for God to take what they consider to be the source of life and make it absolutely unusable by turning it into blood and leaving it that way. By the way, the, the leprosy comes and goes. The serpent comes and goes. But the Nile River is turned to blood fixed in that position. God is saying something about his power, his greater power than the power of Egypt, or the power of the Nile, or even the power of creation and illness and sickness. God is God indeed. Moses says, who am I? And God says, irrelevant. Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have you forgotten this? He says, what if they don't believe me? And God says, you don't believe my word, but here are some demonstrations. Moses makes a fourth objection. Look at it in verse 10. Exodus 4.10. And Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Some theologians believe that Moses may have had a, a speech impediment or some kind of a stutter. Other theologians say at this point he's just making excuses because we hear him be articulate in other places that this may just be him trying to get out of this deal. But isn't that so like us? God has given us the joy and the privilege to serve him, to carry this message of the gospel to the world, to make sacrifices in service of one another, to live lives in obedience to Christ. And, and how much time do we spend going, I, 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 I'm not, I can't do it. I'm too broken. I'm too far gone. There's, I've got too much weakness. There's too many things about me that make me unusable by God. And nobody knows us better than we do, right? Nobody knows you better than you know you. So you're intimately acquainted with all of your weakness, with all of your flaws, with all of your infirmities, with all of your brokenness, with all your frailty. Moses knew. And he looks at God and he says, you know, if he's got a speech impediment, it may be something like, God, you know I don't talk so good, right? And I love God's response. See, we've gotten really good at sort of opting out of, of God's expectation. We've figured out as Americans how to get out of jury duty, right? Have you done that? You know how to do that, right? How to get around it, find all kinds of ways. You get out of jury duty by, you know, there's all kinds of loopholes, Christians have become really good at finding loopholes. They go, well, you know, I'm, I'm shy. I'm not a public speaker. Well, you know, I'm old. I'm too young. I've been to too much school. I haven't done enough school. I don't have enough money. I got too much money. Whatever. We come up with all kinds of reasons why we can't be used by God. Moses says, God, I don't talk very good. And look at God's response. Verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? And who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Here's his response. Moses goes, God, I, I don't, don't talk so well. And God goes, hey, I made your face, dude, right? I literally am the one who put your head together and stuck your tongue in there. I think I know what you can do. Who makes man's mouth? Who makes him seeing or blind, hearing or deaf? All of that stuff is me. That's me. I'm the one who chooses those things, and I'm also the one who has called you. There is not an excuse that you and I can bring up that catches God by surprise. There's nothing we can say. God, I'm too old. As if he's going to go, what? When did you get old? Right? I'm too shy. What? Nothing you can say is an excuse to opt out of God's expectation and his choice for you. 
Well, it makes sense. God will always look at you and go, I know who you are. I made you. I chose you. I knew who you were when I put my stamp on you. And it's because of that weakness in some ways that I chose you in the first place. God likes using the foolish things in the world to show his wisdom. God likes using the broken things in this world. He likes using these jars of clay. Because when he uses these jars of clay, it shows the surpassing worth and greatness of God, what's contained in the jar, instead of the jar itself. Nobody looks at our lives and goes, wow, they're so awesome. But they look at us and go, whoa, the guy with the speech impediment was used by God? The guy who made all kinds of excuses was used by God? Moses says, I don't talk so well. And God says, I know how you talk, because I built you. And he says the same thing to us this morning. I wonder what kind of excuses you've been holding on to. What kind of loopholes you think you found. What kind of way out of obedience and sacrifice and service. What kind of way out you think you found that allows you to put your head on the pillow at night feeling like you figured it out. Because whatever your excuse is, God has heard it before. And whatever it is that you think disqualifies you from being used, whatever you think it is that makes it impossible for God to use you, whether it's a physical issue or a moral issue or whether it's an emotional issue or a spiritual issue, whatever it is, God knows you already. God says, I know you, and that's why I picked you. He says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And here's the kicker. Moses makes four objections and then finally he flat out says in verse 13, oh my Lord, please send someone else. What? Right? It's just like when I broke up with a girl on Valentine's Day. Right? He says, who am I? Who are you? What if they don't believe? What if you don't know what you're talking about, God? I'm too weak. I'm too frail. I'm too broken. I'm not a good candidate for this kind of thing. God systematically answers every one of his excuses and every one of his objections. And when he realizes he's not going to be able to weasel out of it, he finally just looks at God and says, I don't want to. And you might look at that and go, oh, shame on you, Moses, right? But I got to tell you, I actually think the honesty here, when Moses looks at God and says, send somebody else, I don't want to do it, I actually think that's a hundred times better, a hundred percent better than Christians who will say, hey, God is the most important thing in my life, and I'm so thankful that Jesus came and died for me, and I would go anywhere he called me to go and do anything he asked me to do. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back and then they never follow him. I'd much rather have somebody simply look at God and say, nope, not gonna do it. I'm not gonna go where you want me to go. I'm not gonna make the sacrifices you've asked me to sacrifice. I'm not gonna tell anybody about who you are. I'm gonna continue to be the king of my life. That kind of honesty at least is true. But the trap that we tend to fall into as Christians is paying lip service to saying God is supreme. Ascribe to him the worth that he is due. And then in our lives... He gets none of it. We say one thing and do another. It's called hypocrisy. It's what the church is constantly accused of by the world in which we live. Jesus says, these people draw near to me with their mouths and their tongue, but their hearts are far from me. Moses looks at God and says, I don't want to do it. And I got to tell you, 
I like the honesty of it. At least he didn't try and pretend. Because here's the thing about pretending, too. When, when you pretend, who is it you're fooling? When you pretend to be honoring God with your life, the only people you're fooling are the people sitting next to you, right? They're the only ones you can fool. You can't fool yourself because you know your heart. And you can't fool God because he, he knows you intimately. So the only ones you fool are the people sitting side to side, the other people in this room. And who cares about what they think? I can't figure out why we would spend any time trying to convince other people that we care about Jesus when we truly don't. I think we gotta turn loose of that. God gets angry in this passage, by the way. People sometimes will go, oh, you know, God, he never gets angry. He's just nice. He wants butterflies to land on you, and he's gonna send a rainbow, you know. God does love you, and he does care about you, but there are times where God in his righteousness and his holiness becomes angry, and it's absolutely appropriate. It's not wrong. God gets angry here, and he says to Moses, verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses hadn't even picked the staff back. I was still sitting. He didn't want to mess with it because it sometimes turns into a snake, right? God looks at Moses and he says, Aaron, your brother is going to come and he's going to speak the words you give him. He's going to go where you tell him to go. He's going to be your mouth. It will be, he says, as if you were God to Aaron. What's he saying? He goes, hey, Moses, there's a way this is supposed to work where I, I am Right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says go or says speak or says do or says sacrifice and my people obey me. He goes, you clearly don't understand it so I'm gonna paint a picture for you. Aaron's gonna come and you're gonna tell him things and he's gonna do them and it will be a picture for you of what this relationship between us is supposed to look like. Now God has called us to obedience and yet we get so preoccupied with asking these questions, making these excuses. Who am I? Who are you? What if they don't believe what if your word doesn't matter? I, I can't do it because I'm so weak and so broken. I got all these limitations. But at the end of the day, they're just excuses most of the time. At the end of the day, it's us just saying, I don't wanna go. And even in that, most of the time, we don't have the guts to say, I'm not gonna do it. We pretend like we're gonna do it, and we don't. Well, shame on us in that. Church, We've gotta be people who set aside our excuses, who turn loose of those things we've been using to opt out of God's purpose and his plan for us and instead become people who say yes to God, people who obey God. God speaks and we move. No excuses, no arguments, no justifications, no loopholes, but a simple command followed by simple obedience. That's who God has created us to be. Would you pray with me this morning? And as you bow your head, I would just ask you this. It may be that even as we've been talking this morning, as we've been looking at God's word, there may be places in your life where you know you've been making excuses. Places where you know already you, you've been ignoring the call of God upon your life. Would you just ask him right now to identify those things to you and take them? Will you just turn them loose? Say, God, I give you my excuses. I give you my doubts. I give you my fears. I give you my obstinance. Take it. I want to be the servant, the disciple, the ambassador you created me to be. God, I pray that you would move in us, that we would not be a community or culture of excuse makers, but that we would be a community of followers 
who so wholly believe in the truth of who you are that we clearly understand who you've created us to be, that we recognize our role in evangelism to declare the truth with boldness, and that we recognize that our weaknesses are not a hindrance to that message, but they are tools in your hand to be used for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.